Manager David B. Falk, Chairman of Falk Associates Management Enterprises Incorporated, located in Washington, D.C., in response to questions about the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. I'm one of your hosts, James, and I'm back. We're back. Diaz back with you once again. Season four, remember that guy ready to go, and we are starting this season with a banner, folks. What an incredible guest that we got today. A man who that statement was actually originally written about. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, you know, I kind of had to give up my position as, remember that guy, attorney, to have, I couldn't write it about myself. I'm back, the very special guest, Xavier. It's lovely to have you in a non-legal capacity. There's no more attorney-client privilege on the audio recordings. There's hours of stuff that I had to delete because it was, while Xavier was just telling us all kinds of things we were doing that were illegal. You know how many NDAs I've had these two sign? It's actually just one each, but still, they're very lengthy. For legal purposes, you said it, not us. And speaking of things that you have said, Xavier, I would love to hear who is making memories for you right now. Thanks, James. Yeah, so there's a couple that I wanted to talk about. First, I I want to give a shout out to Noah Lyles, American sprinter, who just yesterday uh, broke the American record for fastest 200 meters ever. At the World Championships... He ran a 19.31, which is 0.01 seconds faster than Michael Johnson's record that he set 26 years ago. It was a record that a lot of people thought would just never be broken by an American. I mean, most track records do not last that long, and for it to last 26 years was astounding. But at the championship yesterday, Lyles just had an incredible turn. By the time he got out of the break, was multiple body lengths ahead of everyone else. Collapsed at the finish line, it read unofficially 19.32, and then ticked down to 19.31, giving him the new record. He ripped off his shirt in celebration. It was, it was very cool. Uh, the fact that people can move that fast really is incredible. What, what really puts it in perspective, too, is I believe the second place finish in that race finished like a 19.7. And you think like... Okay, four-tenths of a second, that's not a lot. But you see how much that Lyles finished ahead of the pack by, like, just by a good, probably, 20 meters that he finished ahead by. Like, it was insane. And it's always, I, I'm glad to see the, the 200 record. What puts it in context for me is, uh, in middle school, I was a bit of a track star. I started on our 4 by 2 team, and my individual 200s would usually come in at, like, a 24-something. So to think that me at like my athletic prime was still a full five seconds slower, like I would be probably just about making the turn, maybe just about finishing the turn as Lyles is crossing the finish line. Bonkers. Just bonkers. The ability for humans to do this really is incredible. And it also does put into context just how good Usain Bolt is because Usain Bolt still has the world record. This was the American record, but I mean, he's also just a, a madman. I don't think anyone's going to ever touch what he did, especially at that height, because people forget that Usain Bolt was up like 6'5", and sprinting is usually a, usually a sub six foot person's game. You know, the shorter you are, less air resistance. But uh, it was incredible performance by Lyles. But I also want to talk about two incredible performances and women's sports that I think should get some credit. So 
University of South Florida softball pitcher Georgina Korik became the first pitcher in D1 softball history to earn the pitching triple crown this past season. We've talked a lot about the Oklahoma women's softball team, but we should give some credit to this historic achievement. Any of you want to guess the, the numbers that Miss Korik put up? So established, the triple crown, we're talking wins, ERA, strikeouts. Yes. Zero ERA, 69 wins, and 420 strikeouts. Okay, yes, I, I know say, that's impossible. Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. Because I'm going to make similar jokes, but on a slightly different thing. You're going to try a little bit. She had a .69 ERA. She had 420 strikeouts. And what's a funny single digit? Not single digit. Uh, I'm going to say 34 wins because it's as close as we can get to 69 and I'll round down from now. <laughs> so... Georgina Korik had 37 wins, a 0.51 ERA, and 418 strikeouts. Oh, so close. So close. She also had multiple perfect games. She had an 11-inning shutout where she had 19 strikeouts. And I believe she had 34 complete games. Price. Out of, I, what, I, what I like about softball... Like with the pitching staff is the starters are able to go much more frequently than in baseball. So, I mean, that's, I'm figuring she's starting every other game, basically. She had, right? she had 40 starts. 40, 40 starts, starts. And they probably played about 80 games. 34 complete games, 21 of them shutouts. So she, did a, she pitched a total of 274 innings over the course of the season. So that's 85%, I believe, of her starts. She just went the distance. That's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. The, these numbers are insane. So, you know, shout out to Georgina Korik. The other person I want to give a shout out to, and I'm sure she's feeling a little sad right now based on what just happened. The Belgium women's soccer team goalkeeper, Nikki Evrard. Unfortunately, Belgium did just lose in the quarterfinals to Sweden on a 92nd minute game winner. But the only reason that Belgium, who is not considered a top team in Europe and would have been an incredible shock to make the semifinals, the only reason they were still in it was because of their goalkeeper, Nikki Avrard. She has been the best player in the entire tournament in a tournament that's full of stars. The group stage, Belgium, with Nikki Avrard in goal, prevented 5.5 more goals than they were expected to give up. Their XG for goals given up was 8.5. She only gave up three. She saved two penalties and made an insane amount of saves. In today's game against Sweden, she was pulling a full Tim Howard moment of just stopping absolutely everything, even on the goal that happened at the end. It only happened after she had come up for the cross from a corner, stopped that, stopped the rebound, and then while she was on the ground after having saved the rebound, it just fell to another Swedish player two yards from the net. She was pretty much unstoppable. And after today's game, would have had saved seven more goals than expected in just four games. So averaging, saving their team almost two more goals a game for the entire tournament. And the thing about Nikki Avrard is she is not a full professional soccer player. She is a semi-pro because the Belgian Women's Soccer League is not a professional league like America or France or Spain or England. Do you want to know what she does as a side job? 
bus driver. Carpenter. She rents out bounce castles for parties. So much better than anything I could have possibly guessed. She, uh, they, she was interviewed about this, and she said, I'm an entrepreneur. I took the plunge and got into the business of bounce castles. She said, just before COVID hit, we tried to organize sports or football camps. These included a bouncy castle for the little brothers and sisters who, who were coming along to the camp. When we wanted to buy one, the seller surprised me by asking if I'd be interested in taking over his business. So she tried to rent a bouncy castle. And that, well, she did rent a bouncy castle. Then she wanted to buy one and then just took over the business for the person that she was buying a bounty castle from. And now she has a business where she rents out bounty castles. And now she's expanding the business. Quote, initially there were six bounty castles, but now there are nine. I also have ground sheets, trolleys for transporting the castles, and devices for inflating them. Soon my brother will be joining the business. Great. Good for them. <laughs> I'm happy for this brother-sister Belgian bounce house bonanza good for uh, one more fa fantastic alliteration i want to give a shout out to brother kev uh who in his time as president of our beloved fraternity had his own bounce castles uh to deal with that's that's the only thing i could think of right now so <laughs> kev i'm sorry if this segment has uh brought back repressed memories <laughs> speaking of of memories diaz who's making memories for you so uh making memories for me what i was originally gonna do was from watching the MLB All-Star Game, my favorite segment of it was when David Ortiz was just running around the American League dugout, just kind of just bugging everybody that was there. The players, I think, were a little caught off guard by some of it, but baseball as a sport, I think, takes itself too seriously a lot of the time. And that's the kind of content that I don't just need that in the All-Star Game. Like, there is no reason why on the Sunday... Fox game of the day, game of the week, whatever you want to call it. Big Poppy should just be in the dugout bugging everybody. In both dugouts the whole time. Like, the umpire should call time so that he can run across to the other dugout mid-inning. I don't need commentators. I don't need, there's a long drive to left field and that'll make it 4 nothing. and I don't know if I'm going to put this headset on ever again. <laughs> I just need Big Poppy in the dugout commiserating with the players. I absolutely love that stuff, but... Some late-breaking news right as we started to record this podcast, so any wrestling fan will be well aware of this by the time that you listen to this on Monday. But as we record here on Friday evening, it was just announced that Vince McMahon has officially retired and fully stepped down from WWE. He will no longer have any operating stakes in WWE. Certainly, a to put it as nicely as I can, controversial man who has done many controversial things and in fact there's controversy is really the reason that has forced him out now wwe and whatnot are going to act like it's for different things but uh there there is a lawsuit out against uh, mr mcmahon right now so we would we would be derelict in our journalistic duties which we take so seriously on this podcast if we didn't at least mention that whether you like them whether you don't like them i think Wrestling would not be as big of an industry as it is today if it were not for what Vince McMahon did. Did he underpay and screw over a lot of wrestlers along the way? One million percent. But at the same time, WWE does a lot of great work for charity. John Cena in specific, I believe is the most prolific 
what's the he's, word? He is the number one make a wish. <laughs> make a wish. Yeah. The, no, the number one wish maker, I think, is how I want to say that. Has but, granted the most wishes. Is the number one genie. Extremely prolific in that. But no, look, for, for, for better or for worse, I just think it is worth acknowledging that Vince is now out. WWE is going to go in a brand new direction now. It's mostly going to be ran by his daughter, Stephanie. And uh, she's married to Triple H, Paul Levesque. Hopefully, in this new era, there is more recognition for wrestlers' rights. I would hope that Triple H, being somebody who came from the ring, would take that close to heart and really make sure that, you know, these people that sacrifice their bodies on a nightly basis have guaranteed health care. I think that's kind of a basic minimum thing that the organization could provide. But I wanted to just acknowledge Vince... I'm not going to say thank you. I'm not going to say best wishes, but I'm going to say you created a behemoth. You are a titan of the industry for better or for worse. So You made a lot of memories. There's lots of memories. Some of them may be nightmares, but we will remember them nonetheless. So to a long, successful for you monetarily career, thank God your wife, despite you pouring millions of dollars into two Senate races, got throttled in Connecticut. That, that's my best memory of the McMahon family. We're going to need uh, some um, reaction on the ground from our WWE correspondent, Mr. Medicinal, whenever he's able to get on again. But we, got, we have uh, one more person to, to stake their memories, so please take it away, James. Absolutely. Uh, first off, I mean, I just want to echo what you said. The mic'd up parts of the All-Star game were fucking great. Those I understand why you can't have in like a game where things matter guys saying what pitch they're going to throw to be fair but it was incredible it's really awesome i think you can still have the fielders and stuff do it the way they've been doing it this season so i disagree i love getting to hear baseball players during baseball games what a concept that being said i want to return to the world games where we were just a little bit ago right before we get back to our guys i actually want to play one more round of who wants to be a guy air i got a single question for you guys it's one category I'm going to tell you three competitions that happened at the World Games. I want you to tell me which one is fake. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Number one, we've got Korfball. That is spelled K-O-R-F-B-A-L-L. It originated in Norway, and it is an eight-person mixed-gender team. It's essentially like basketball, except there's space that you can shoot into the hoop all around the hoop, and also there is no backboard. So games <laughs> are incredibly low scoring. And I'll go ahead and tell you that this year, for this sport, if it exists, Netherlands took gold over Germany. The next one that I have for you is orienteering. Orienteering is a cross-country race where you are not given a path to run through, rather you are given a map and a compass and have to navigate your way through the race. This originally came from Sweden, and the winner this year came from New Zealand. Finally, I have for you Kayak Polo. Kayak Polo is a newer addition to the World Games. Uh, it is supposedly from England. Uh, it's exactly what you think it is. It's water polo where people are playing on kayaks. And this year, there was a women's and a men's competition. France took the women's and Germany took the men's. Which one of those three things was a lie? Okay, I know Corkball is real because I watched that. So I know that that one is 100% real. And orienteering I know is a real thing, but I do not know if it's a real thing at the World Games. So I'm between orienteering and kayak polo, which sounds so stupid, I hope you didn't make it up. I'm going to say orienteering is the fake one because I hope you didn't make up kayak polo. Uh, it's just that there can only be one. I'm going to say kayak polo. 
Sounds too Guess what? You're both wrong because this is a trick question. You, you bastard! Than All three of these things are 100% real competitions at the World Games, and I just wanted to celebrate that incredibly silly international. I, I, I should have known because I. Damn it! I should have just. I should have guessed that they did all seem real. Well, they seemed real because they were real. Yeah. Man, the World Games is awesome. This isn't even all of the ones. I recommend people look into it, but those three in particular, I just wanted to highlight. And so that's what's making memories for me this week. I was watching that and the All-Star game because there was no other baseball. Corfball, just, I've watched it before, and I've never gotten so mad watching a sport because, like, they call fouls on things that, like, I'm not even sure what the foul is. Like, you're not even allowed to, like, look at the person shooting in a funny way or they're going to say it's a defensive violation. Like, I, I've watched that sport, and I have zero clue how you're supposed to play defense. Which then also just confounds me, how is it so low scoring? Nothing about that sport makes sense to me. It makes me very angry. I just needed to get my little court ball rants out. James, is, is Pesha Polo a game at the World Games? Do, do they have that there? Because that's one of my favorite weird games. It's like... What Finnish, is this? It's Finnish baseball. I watched a video on it once where it's like extremely narrow field where essentially... Imagine if your baseball field after uh, third base and, and first base just went directly vertical so there was no huh. like left field and right field that's bizarre yeah so it, it it's a while like and people like stand in like in a circle behind the bed like you got to watch a video of it because it the first time i watched it, it is absolutely wild but it feels like that's a game that they would have like at the uh like at the world games i, I feel like you would love it if you watched the video of it in fact i'm gonna send you one after this well yeah i mean because we love these complex silly things that that seem very kind of obfuscated to us and you know if, if i may segue into our main course today that was kind of what inspired me to to bring our category today i challenged us this week to come up with our best guys involved in schemes i wanted that to be very open to you all but but schemes in some capacity is what these guys are going to be known for i'll go ahead and get things kicked off with a friend of ours who was a uh, a major leaguer, but a minor major leaguer. And this is a guy named Jason Grimsley. Do either of you guys remember Jason yes. Grimsley? Definitely yes. heard the name. Yes. Jason Grimsley, born Jason Allen Grimsley. We're speaking of his name. He's born in Cleveland, Texas, August 7th, 1961. Cleveland, Texas. It's near the Houston area. It's founded as a railroad town. It is still today only about 5,500 people. There's a lot of land out there. And so growing up in his little nuclear family of parents, Johnny and Judy, and brother, Joe, so yes, all four of them do have names starting with Jay, Johnny and Judy had a plan there. They didn't have a plan, though, when they gave their sons a pair of dirt bikes to ride all over their land. So at the age of 12, these guys are riding dirt bikes, and Jason catches his bike on a stump, flips over, and ends up having to get his left toe removed. So now <laughs> he has no big toe on his left foot. This does not stop Jason Allen Grimsley from becoming an incredibly athletic young kid. In eighth grade, he is, despite missing a toe on one of his feet, an incredibly good basketball player and high jumper. Things that typically you want to have all your toes for, I feel like. That also doesn't stop him as he moves into Tarkington High School. He is going to become now a star pitcher. He is a right-handed pitcher planting on his left foot, which again, has no big toe, and a right-handed quarterback planting on that same foot. None of this is stopping him. He is, in fact, so good at this. He is the only notable alumnus on the Wikipedia page for the entire Tarkington School District. Ooh, that's a fun thing to think about. 
you figure there'd be at least like one person who's like, oh yeah, and like you know this person like joined NASA or something. Not even Tarkington High School, the Tarkington School District. The only notable alumnus is Jason Allen Grimsley. And that is because that incredible slider of his is going to get noticed by a Philly scout ahead of the 1985 MLB draft. He is going to be part of one of, if not the greatest drafts in the history of Major League Baseball. Uh, This begins sort of in 1982 when there's a bunch of high schoolers who do not sign the contracts that are offered build their stock immensely over the next three years when they re-enter. Like number one overall pick, B.J. Serhoff, who we talked about last week. He goes to the Brewers number one overall. This whole draft class is going to accumulate the most war all time. A very big part of that is the number six overall pick for Pittsburgh. That is Barry Bonds. Uh, But it is not just built around Barry Bonds. There are a lot of other guys. we got Rafael Palmero, another mention from last week. At number 22, he goes to the Cubs. We've got three two-sport athletes that I just wanted to highlight. None of these guys sign, but... This draft sees Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, and with the 14th round pick, 359th overall, the Baltimore Orioles, they select Del Curry. So all three of those guys are taken in this same draft. None of them sign, but Jason Grimsley does when he is taken later on by the Phillies. So he's 17 years old now, a lot of raw potential, but he's got some wild delivery because again, he doesn't have a toe on the foot that he plants on when he throws 90-something mile-per-hour fastballs. So he's, he's a like sushi raw coming into the system, and he starts to work his way up the Philly system. Utica, Spartansburg, South Carolina, Clearwater, Florida, and then he ends up in the AA Reading Phillies. At this point, he has played 90 games. He has started 69. Nice. nice. Uh, he's not very good, though. He is, at that time, giving up seven hits per nine innings. He's getting eight strikeouts per nine innings. So those are like the two things. It's not terrible for hits allowed. That's pretty good for strikeouts. Here are the things that are not great. 6.2 walks per nine, 9.6 wild pitches per nine, and an unfathomable to me, 6.3 hit batters per nine innings. So it's a lot. That's two every three three innings. Yeah. I would be afraid to get up to the plate against him just because it's either I'm going to get a hit or I'm going to get hit. He's going to hit two batters almost every night. Despite this, the 1989 Phillies at the time, not doing so great. And so actually after 26 games with the Reading Phillies, where he actually starting to, to catch on, he's had 11 wins at this point. He's got a 2.98 ERA. He's called directly up from AA to the majors on September 5th. A little bit later in Montreal, he gets his first ever major league start. And it's fine. He goes five innings, gives up a run, gets the win. They, they take care of him after he's pulled for a pinch hitter. And then he has three more starts that are absolutely dreadful. 19 walks in 18 and two-thirds innings over those last three. So the next year, he's finally going to get to go to AAA, actually get honed a little bit more. Still not amazing, but five walks per nine they can stomach. So as the Phillies hit another rough stretch, he comes up and probably has his best ever stretch as a starter, which is only three wins in 11 games started for a 3-3 ERA. It's, it's fine. It's completely mediocre. But again, they don't have a whole lot of better options at this point. He comes to spring training again the next year. This is big. The Phillies make him go to a mandatory PR thing with the Board of Commerce. That's where he meets his wife, Dana, which is great because that's about the only highlight of his season. He's just garbage in the majors. One in seven in his time there before being sent back down. (laughs) The next spring training, he reports again, but the Phillies decide, you know, we can't do anything with this prospect. They're looking around for someone else. They find the Astros, who have not been able to do anything with their current pitching prospect. You've got some problems with control for Jason Grimsley. You've got some problems with self-control for Kurt Schilling, 
over in Houston. The two decide, <laughs> yeah, all right, we'll switch it because Kurt Schilling shows up to training camp like totally fat and out of shape. Uh, so they just swap them pretty much one for one. Schilling turns things around. Grimsley does not. He spends the entire season in AAA Tucson, has a solid second half, and decides he's going to go play in the Venezuelan leagues in the summer. However, despite playing the Venezuelan leagues and clearly like putting in the time to try and get up there, he is cut by the Astros. But when God closed the door, he opens a window with incredibly tragic deaths. At this time, in Cleveland, well, not in Cleveland, the Cleveland baseball team, while they are in Claremont, Florida, have a proto-Jose Fernandez problem. Tim Cruz and Steve Olin, a pair of relievers, and starter Bob Ojeda, they are all boating late at night, and Olin has a .14 BAC while piloting the boat. So he does run aground. That does kill relievers Tim Cruz and Steve Olin. Bob Ojeda is badly injured. And so Cleveland starts here at the start of the season calling up everyone that they have from the minors. And to replenish the minors, they see that Jason Grimsley is available on the waiver wire. So he goes to the AAA Charlotte Knights. The AAA Charlotte Knights this year are a absolute dynamo. Go like 80 and 50. They are managed by your boy Charlie Manuel Diaz. Charlie Manuel is the manager for these Knights. Charles Fuqua. His middle name is Fuqua. F-U-Q-U-A. Phenomenal. We've got Sandy Alomar, Manny Ramirez, Jim Tomei. We have Wayne Kirby, who is the former base coach for the Orioles, current base coach for the Mets. Quick shout out to him. He just had successful cancer surgery. Both Pete Alonzo of the Mets and Manny Machado, formerly of the Orioles, gave him a shout out in pregame ceremonies before the All-Star game. But anyways, amazing Charlotte team. And Jason Grimsley is doing fine on there. So because... All of these guys are just on the taxi squad. Only four members of this minor league team never make it to the majors. Jason Grimsley eventually comes up in late August to help with the bullpen and rotation and just stabilize things a little bit. Just enough in 1993 to call him back up to the big leagues in 94. And 94 is where I want to get into the scheme that I knew Jason Grimsley for. There's an incident on July 15th, 1994. At the time, Cleveland has traveled to the Chicago White Sox Comiskey Park. And ahead of the game, the manager of the Chicago White Sox, Gene Lamont, he is informed that there's something weird about slugger Albert Bell. Bell notoriously liked corked bats. And Gene Lamont was told that Albert Bell currently was wielding a corked bat. So he alerted the umpires to this. The umpires decided they were going to confiscate Albert Bell's bat during the game. They would deal with it afterwards someone else would provide him with a different bat to use during that time. And just to let some people know real quick, if you don't know what corking a bat is, essentially you drill about a half inch hole down the core of the shaft of the bat and you fill it with some kind of bouncy substance. This is intended to give it a trampoline effect. It has been found that it does absolutely nothing. Uh, It actually absorbs (laughs) force more than anything. It is a Uneffective thing. It does exactly the opposite of what you're trying to do, but it is totally against the rules. Specifically, rule 6.03, subsection A5, a batter is out for illegal action. When he attempts to use a bat that, in the umpire's judgment, has been altered or tampered with in such a way to improve the distance factor or cause an unusual reaction to the baseball. So even though this isn't actually improving the distance factor, it is still against the rules. So if Albert Bell gets caught, this is bad. And everybody knows Albert Bell's bat is 100% corked. According to Omar Vizquel, people were like, well, can we just replace it with another one of Albert's bats? No, all of Albert Bell's bats are corked. We're, we're fucked here. But Jason Allen Grimsley gets an idea. Besides, he has a mission. And his mission, should he choose to accept it, to get up from the clubhouse that they are currently in, the visitor's clubhouse, through a tile into the false ceiling, to then take a flashlight in his mouth, 
and use that to navigate across the false ceiling while holding a bat from his friend, Paul Sorrento, across the hall into the locked umpire's room, get himself lowered down into the room, replace the bats, and then abscond back with no one any the wiser. This is Jason Grimsley's big scheme. Want to make it clear, no one asked Jason Grimsley to do this. The team is just like panicking in the locker room, and Jason Grimsley says, it just came into my mind. I have to get that bat. What so, is he trying to accomplish with this? So the thought is that when the umpire inspects it, if it's not corked, they won't get in trouble. You got to tamper with the evidence. Come on. Yeah, it's yeah. it's literally he is robbing. He's stealing evidence and replacing it with false evidence. Jason Grimsley goes across. He does actually manage to lower himself down successfully onto the fridge in the umpire's room. So he's gotten safely down from the ceiling now. And he successfully replaces Albert Bell's bat with Paul Sorrento's bat. He gets back up into the ceiling, crawls across, gets back down. Albert Bell's bats are are absconded with. They order some replacements. And for just a little bit, no one is the wiser. Now, after the game, umpire Dave Phillips, who we have to talk about for just one second. Dave Phillips is a baseball Forrest Gump. He is a Forrest Gumpire if you will. Uh, Dave Phillips is the Forrest umpire. He has umpired six no-hitters. Basically, an umpire could be expected to see half a no-hitter in their lifetime. Every two umpires, one of them will ump a no-hitter. Dave Phillips has six. Uh, He is also the crew chief for the Disco Demolition Night, if you've ever heard about that. Bill Veck with the White Sox had all of these guys come destroy with TNT a bunch of records in the middle of a doubleheader which unsurprisingly ruined the field for the rest of the day, and they forfeited the game. Dave Phillips was the umpire that day. Dave Phillips was also the umpire for the continuation of the George Brett Pine Tar game. Uh, Xavier, as a Yankees fan, is probably well aware that George Brett's originally called out because of Pine Tar in this game. Goes nuts. (laughs) Yeah, George Brett gets incredibly mad. They overturn it. They have to restart that game with George Brett thrown out because he went nuts. Dave Phillips is the umpire for that continued one. Dave Phillips also is the last thing I promise for Dave Phillips. He is the first person to ever eject Gaylord Perry, who's a famous like spitball pitcher. Everyone knew that Gaylord Perry was cheating constantly. He did not get ejected until 21 years into his career. And Dave Phillips was the first guy to ever eject him. Dave Phillips did not even know that he was the first guy to eject him at that point. He assumed it had happened many times before, as I'm sure many umps did. You just got the bystander effect at that point. Uh, so that's Dave Phillips, Forrest Gumpire. Eagle-eyed guy. So he comes into that room and he immediately looks at that bell. He's like, that's a little bit less shiny than the one that I saw earlier. Oh, also, all of Albert Bell's bats have his signature stamped on them, and all of Paul Sorrento's bats also have their signature stamped on them, so he could look and see that the bat now had a different name on it. So that was also the big giveaway to Dave Phillips. (laughs) It was the perfect crime, except for the literal name that was on the bat. There's also, like, small chunks of ceiling tile all over the ground (laughs) around the refrigerator. Jason Grimsley was not as sneaky as he thought he was. However... Jason Grimsley is not known yet to be involved in this, but they know something's up. They know someone switched bats. They get the Chicago police involved. MLB gets like (laughs) an ex-FBI prosecutor involved. They start dusting the place for fingerprints. They finally, a couple days later, come to Cleveland and just like, look, give us the bat and it's over. Like, give us the bat and we move on. But we know you have the bat. Give us the fucking bat. Once they get it, they x-ray it. They chop it down the middle. They show the core. Albert Bell is suspended for 10 full games. He doesn't even finish out that suspension. It's 1994. MLB goes on strike. So all of this like gets 
totally wiped under the carpet for a while. No one really remembers it by the time he finishes out that suspension next season. And for years, no one knows that Jason Grimsley is the one that uh, did this. No one knows that Jason Grimsley is the one that stole the bat in Batgate. This doesn't come out until he's doing an interview with the New York Magazine in 1999, five years later. Let's catch up to how he's gotten to New York in 1999. He's still with Cleveland in 1995, but by the end of it, when they actually go to the World Series, he's been sent down to their new AAA team in Buffalo. He has an absolutely terrible season the next season with the California Angels. It is by far his worst in all of his career. He hits 13 batsmen in this one. And then from 97 to 98, he is just going through the minors. He's going to Detroit, Milwaukee, KC, Cleveland again. He comes back to Buffalo. While he doesn't make it to Cleveland again, that is close enough to New York that he is noticed by the Yankees director of player personnel and former pitcher, Billy Connors. This is now in 1999. They very recently had a lot of success turning a failed starter into a very successful reliever with Mo Rivera. And Billy Connors comes to Grimsley with a similar approach. It's like, look, a lot of your stuff just ain't working anymore. Get one good modified breaking fastball and just do that to death. Whereas Mo has that cutter, he tells Jason Grimsley, develop a really good sinker. We've got a strong defense behind us, despite Derek Jeter playing it short. We're just going to get you all these ground outs, that's how you're going to be one of our shutdown relievers. It's not nothing's changed over 20 years because that's literally what they told Clay Holmes when they picked him up last year. Only throw your sinker. Don't throw li- anything else. And now he's an all-star closer because they said only throw your sinker and no other pitches. I like that they have kept that consistency for 20 years. How we fix relievers is tell them to throw one single pitch. I mean, I hate to admit it, but the Yankees pitching staff seems to be doing pretty fucking well. Like, they, they know their stuff. They know how to get the most out of who they got. And they get a lot out of Jason Grimsley. He actually pitches the second most innings in the bullpen that season. Pitches more than Mo. And so they make it to the playoffs. Now, here's the thing. You get to the playoffs, it's higher competition. You don't want to rely on BABIP anymore. You don't want to count that the balls being put into play are always going to be able to be fielded. So he does not, as a ground ball pitcher see a whole lot of action in the playoffs doesn't play in the ALDS which is a rematch against Texas as uh, Xavier talked all about last week Uh, doesn't play in the ALCS against Boston at all in the World Series though in game three Andy Pettit throws just a stinker after a couple innings and so in comes Jason Grimsley to mop it up pitches two and a third scoreless he allows some base runners but gets through all of his jams and the Yankees take the lead during that time the next night Yankees win in game four and they are World Series champions. And so Jason Grimsley, who had been, you know, this know-nothing guy bouncing around, has this astounding bullpen season. During this time, he gives the interview where he finally comes out as the thief of the Albert Bell bat, and then he wins a World Series. Uh, it is one of his best seasons in the bullpen. But he stays in the Yankees' bullpen the next year. Not as much success, but the 2000 Yankees are just as good. He does play a little bit in these playoffs. Despite him not playing in the World Series, the Yankees are more than happy to go on and three-peat and win the 2000 World Series as well. So now Jason Grimsley has two rings. He's been a pretty effective reliever for a couple years in New York. You know what he's going to do? He is going to cash out and just start collecting paychecks in Kansas City. He goes to the (laughs) Royals in the early 2000s, which is a great way to be a fine pitcher in a perfectly fine organization that is not doing anything. He's getting paid pretty well at this point, and he really loves the suburb that they move into. He's got a couple kids with wife Dana. He's making a home for themselves. They're making them a home in Overland Park, Kansas. This is just outside of Kansas City. He's pretty good with KC for three and a half years. 
still the bullpen at this time. It is the longest single tenure that he has with any team. And particularly that last year, he is quite good while the Royals are not. So now it's 2004. And we've talked a little bit about Xavier's 1998 Yankees. It's time to talk about the 2004 Orioles again, because that's where Jason Grimsley goes. Jason Grimsley is traded to the Orioles in the bullpen for most of the rest of the season to not huge results because he ends up needing Tommy John. And that brings us to the 2005 offseason. This is not a scheme, but it is something that needs to be mentioned. In 2005, in January specifically, he's had his Tommy John surgery. He's recovering the offseason. They're still in Overland Park, Kansas. And he goes to take the boys to school. Dana's at home in the basement with their little baby girl. A little bit earlier, a Cessna 421C Golden Eagle 3 took off from nearby Johnson County Executive Airport with a pilot and five passengers heading out to a golf outing. At 9.43, that jet crashes into the home of the Grimsleys. Jeez. Now the boys and Jason are out, and Dana is fine in the basement. She hears something happen, goes up the stairs, and sees that the house isn't there anymore. But luckily, the way that it hit the house, she was fine. But the house is obliterated. Everyone that was on the plane does pass away. But the Grimsleys are in pretty good spirits. Jason in particular like, makes a point to notice, look, based on the flight path, we were told this guy did everything he could to avoid doing as much damage on the ground as possible. So like, God bless that pilot for trying to minimize the damage that was going to happen. And they're taken in by their community during that time as they rebuild. And he's like, God bless this place that we have moved to. Uh, so it just really reinvigorates his, his faith in humanity. He hopes it'll reinvigorate his, his career. He goes back to the Orioles that year, coming back from that Tommy John in July. But I'll go ahead and tell you, the 2005 Orioles fucking suck. And uh, Jason Grimsley's not much better. So he is released after the season by the 2005 Orioles. Signs with the Arizona Diamondbacks in 2006. And into the season for about 27 innings or so. He's pretty league average. Now it's May 31st. It's a 0-0 game entering the 13th. He is the sixth pitcher to come in in this extra innings game. He is the first person in this nothing-nothing tie to give up a run in the entire game. He takes the loss. And it is the very last appearance that he ever makes in the majors. I initially picked Jason Grimsley because of that scheme that I shared with you earlier. Little did I know, this whole time, this is an amazing twist, Jason Grimsley was involved in another scheme in the background. Just a week later, it's an early morning at the Grimsley household once again. And they hear a noise once again, but it's not a plane crashing this time. It is a knock at the door in Scottsdale. It is the FBI. They have come to seize his cell phone, his answering machine, a whole host of financial statements, all kinds of other electronics. The FBI, it turns out, has been investigating Jason Grimsley for months. In fact, earlier in April, they had actually brought him in to make a deposition because they had traced a shipment of HGH to his home. Turns out that this whole time, Jason Grimsley was a major distributor of PEDs and HGH throughout Major League Baseball. Uh, he had a whole deposition at that point where he named several players. A lot of them, frankly, include the 2004 Orioles, which was very heartbreaking to me at the time. I remember Rafael Palmero is on here. Miguel Tejada is on here. Brian Roberts, BJ Surhoff, Jay Gibbons. It's pretty brutal for the Orioles, I'm going to be honest. He was someone that was telling people like, look, this is the way to safely use it. I am the way to safely get it. This had been going on for years. He does not actively cooperate with the Mitchell report that later comes out, but this forms the basis for the Mitchell report. All of this ties back to Jason Grimsley, a relief pitcher for years who's best known at this point for stealing a corked bat trying to hide through a ceiling. Like, what a life. What a fucking life, right? 
So here's what happens. He finds out when this raid happens that his deposition is about to get released. Now, they're going to black out most of the player names, but basically everyone's going to know he named names. You know, he broke the fraternal trust. And so what he decides to do, he gets this news actually in the visiting bullpen of Philadelphia. And so he goes to management. He asks for his immediate release. He goes to the locker room, confesses to all of his teammates, cleans out his locker immediately after, and leaves. Never returns to baseball. He would have faced a 50-game suspension, but he retires and largely goes into anonymity. That's pretty much the end of Jason Grimsley's story. He's hardly made any public appearances since then. He, you know, honestly, it's kind of the way that, like, if you are someone that was running a steroid ring, I would want you to act just like, all right, yeah, I fucked up. You're able to find a few things that he's been involved with in his retirement life. He set up a baseball instructional facility, but, like, reportedly the building is just a nondescript warehouse. There is no mention of his name anywhere on there just so that it doesn't make him out to be a pariah or anything. He does briefly reunite with New York teammate David Wells. This is fun. They open a New York City nightclub called Plum. I could not confirm whether or not Plum is still in operation, but it definitely was opened by David Wells and Jason Grimsley. It's definitely and, not in operation. Like my dad <laughs> used to work at those nightclubs doing security. They last like four years on average. Good. Because good. I'm kind and of then glad get sold it doesn't. To new people. I do then just want to share the last couple sentences from Grimsley's saber page. I read it as very dry humor, and I just want to share that. Grimsley was also involved in commercial properties around Kansas City, an internet pet supply business, and a car wash. By all accounts, Grimsley still calls Overland Park his home. So that's the story of Jason Grimsley, a a schemer who was so good at scheming that in researching his life specifically to find the scheme that he had done that I knew about, I learned about a whole new scheme going on the whole time. And I like to believe, I think it goes back to the toe. Because the toe that made Jason Grimsley such a wild pitcher, I think it did something to his personality too. I think it made him just a wild guy, a kind of guy that would do two truly wild schemes. And for those two schemes, I think Jason Grimsley is, is <laughs> worthy of induction into the Hall of Guy. And so that's my, that's my guy this week. No, I love it. The, 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 the thing that comes to mind for me hearing that story is just Jason Grimsley is the ultimate teammate willing to do a whole Mission Impossible thing to get in there to get the bat out, managing to keep it a secret for long enough to not even be discovered until he outs himself all those years later. And look, whatever you want to say about performance-enhancing drugs in sports, I think it's something that has always been happening. I think it's something that's happening now. I think it's something that will happen for the history of sports. So I think for Jason to identify, like, you know, Maybe I'm not the best pitcher, but I can be the best drug seller. <laughs> You're a very good dealer. Whatever I'm really do, good at like, converting from English system to metric system. Listen, 28 grams in an ounce. We all know that. That's common knowledge. Don't incriminate yourself, dude. I did not know that. So, 28 grams in an ounce one Jason Grimsley in your clubhouse, and all the steroids you could ever want. I mean, these are just facts of life. (laughs) I also want to point out one more time for that heist. He was not asked to do that. That was just straight up volunteering. That's a good volunteer. Speaking of volunteers, I'll I'll volunteer to go next. So uh, my guy is uh, very notorious as well. I would say much more notorious than Mr. Grimsley. Although there are some crossovers here. Primarily the PEDs. The PEDs are the main source of crossover here. While he did not have a Mission Impossible break-in, 
he did fancy himself in a later life to be an action movie star. I'm talking about one of the most infamous players in college football history with an extremely brief NFL career. A man known simply as the Boz, but was born <laughs> Brian Bosworth. Brian Bosworth. All uh, right. Love the Boz. Maybe the greatest football poster ever. And also the man who gave us something incredible just by existing in some great television inspiration later in life. But well, I will hold on. I won't say we, anything else. We will get to that, Xavier. Don't you worry. I, I assumed. We, we are going to touch on that. But we always got to start from the beginning. So before he was the Boz, he was simply Brian Bosworth. Brian Bosworth was born March 9th, 1965 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. That is not where he played his high school ball. He actually went where all great football players go to play high school. He played in Texas, um, in Irving, Texas, at MacArthur High School. So this is very close to where the Cowboys play is where he went to high school. While playing there, he was a two-time All-American uh, his junior and senior seasons. So from the jump, already quite the talent at linebacker. And he does decide to go home for college to become a Sooner, to play for Barry Switzer for Oklahoma University. He is one of the most dominant college football players of all time, especially on the defensive side of the ball. He has a very good freshman season, and then coming into his sophomore year is where he really starts to imprint himself on a national scene. Now, we'll get to the schemes later, but he's always kind of been a provocateur, is a really good word. Boz knows two things are true in the 80s. Sex sells, people hate villains. So he decides to basically make himself up like an Ivan Drago. If Ivan Drago was a 6'2 linebacker that will just absolutely take your head off. That's kind of the look he's going for. That's where I feel his inspiration came from. I think it's a cross between that and like the high school prep school villains. You know what I mean? Like there's definitely an element of rich kid who's got everything and is trying to shut down the community center so his dad can build a strip mall. (laughs) I have no doubt that the boss in his day gave out plenty of swirlies to nerds that were just trying to make it to calculus. I have zero doubt in my mind that the boss did this as often as he possibly could. But that's where it's interesting, and I would encourage anybody, if you want a deeper dive on the Boz, ESPN 30 for 30 on this subject is really good. Brian and the Boz. There's Brian Bosworth, but then there's the Boz. And in this era, especially, he's leaning fully into the Boz. Sophomore year, he becomes this animal when he goes on the field. He becomes the Boz. And his sophomore year, he is incredibly successful. The Sooners, as well, are very successful. They go 10-1. and one. Their only loss was a pretty bad loss at home to the University of Miami. But when the season ends, the Sooners are ranked third. Bosworth is named the inaugural Dick Butkus Award winner. And not only is Dick Butkus the funniest name in the history of sports, it's also the name (laughs) of the greatest linebacker maybe to ever play the game. So he wins the inaugural Dick Butkus Award his sophomore year. He's also a unanimous All-American and ranks number three in the country, they go to play in the Orange Bowl against number one, Penn State. So this isn't quite a national championship game, but it's about as close as we're going to get. Miami, who they lost to, is ranked number two, and Miami's playing number nine, Tennessee, in, uh, in a separate bowl game. Basically, the, the path here for Oklahoma to win the title, because 
This is back when college football had not even established the BCS yet. It was still, for some reason, like, yeah, okay, you go play there, you go play there. Who cares about determining a true champion? Yeah, because it was still just kind of decided. Right. The national champion was decided on the polls, basically. So Oklahoma knows entering this game, even with the win, assuming Miami takes care of business against Tennessee, best we can hope for is number two. But nonetheless, even though they're number three, Penn State's number one, they enter this game as the favorite, just based on the fact that Penn State had not played as tough of a schedule. Oklahoma playing in the Big Eight at that time, which was people are saying that Penn State's a fake one seed. I think that's appropriate. I think we should always doubt Penn State is a fake one seed. That's great. Penn State's a fake one seed. Uh, they do start off the game pretty hot. They go down and score on their first possession, but anchored by Brian Bosworth on that defense, he leads the team with twelve tackles. Uh, they also accumulate four interceptions as a defense, and they basically shut. And stayed out the rest of the way. They do get a, uh, a a gentleman's field goal at the end of the game to make the final score twenty five to ten. Sooners win. Now, happening simultaneously with this game is Miami playing their game against Tennessee. Miami actually loses. So because of this, Oklahoma now finishes number one in the country, and they are the undisputed champions. Boz gets his reign sophomore year. Comes back for junior year, and an important pretext of his junior year. The Boz, of course, sounds like and presents himself as a total meathead. Boz is actually a lot smarter than, than people may think. He's a lot smarter than he lets on. He has taken credits to the point that he is eligible to graduate after his junior year. But what this essentially now does for him is it gives him the leverage to say, I might go pro if a team that I like drafts me, but if they don't, I'm just going to come back my senior year. So that's, that's kind fucking of the, clever. It's, it's very clever. He is an incredibly clever individual who M- might, might I say a schemer. He is definitely a schemer. And uh, we're going to, we're going to touch on that a little bit towards the end of this junior year season. But yeah, I mean, this is a great scheme. If a team that I like drafts me, I'll go. If they don't, it would kind of like, they'll do it in the baseball draft or they'll say, all right, I'll go back another year. So junior season. Again, they go through just about undefeated in the regular season, but they do drop one game in the Orange Bowl to Miami. This is the regular season game. Uh, So they play at Miami in the Orange Bowl, the name of the stadium, where they lose. uh, This basically costs them a chance at the national title. They do get a bid to then go play in the Orange Bowl, though, as the number three team in the country. They play against Arkansas. And uh, what's unfortunate here is the Boz got randomly tested and did come up positive for steroids. But like any great schemer, Boz is not going to let the facts get in the way of the narrative that he wants to push. (laughs) So he still is the team captain. He still is trying to be a leader for the team. So he walks out for the coin toss pregame in just his jersey, no pads on, but walks out to be a team captain. He's trying to be a leader on the team. And as it gets into the third quarter, it's becoming clear, like, okay, Oklahoma was up 14-0 at half. Clearly got a stranglehold on this game in the third quarter. So Boz says, enough of this game. What about me? So he takes his jersey off, and he reveals a t-shirt, uh, which has uh, the NCAA on it. Uh, the NCAA logo is on this, except instead of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, it says the... National Communists Against Athletes. <laughs> Fun. Now, communists, of course, in the 80s is 
as it is almost today still in, in American discourse, it's just a catch-all for people I don't like. It's, it's the uh, boogeyman. The, the Red Scare, even though he plays for Boomer Sooner wearing the red. But yeah, the National Communists Against Athletes. Even before he was popped for steroids, Boz was a very vocal critic, one of the first people who were at the forefront of what would eventually become the NIL movement, saying, why am I not allowed to make money on my name? Why am I not getting any of the money from these TV contracts? Why is my coach making millions of dollars and I'm not making anything? That's really what the NCAA uh, shirt was about. But if he was able to play in this game, would he have worn that shirt? I don't think so. He's definitely trying to distract, as any good schemer would. But as you can imagine, Barry Switzer in Oklahoma as a whole is not very happy about the fact that he is elected to, to take out this scheme. So he actually gets kicked off the team right after the game. He said, listen, Boz, you're thinking about maybe coming back senior year? Don't worry. We'll make the decision for you. You're no longer welcome on this team. In spite of that, he was still named, again, unanimous All-American. And uh, the repeat winner of the Dick Buckus Award. In fact, to this day, after winning the inaugural and the second Dick Buckus Award for best linebacker in the country, there has never been a player to win more than one Dick Buckus Award. Brian Bosworth is still the only player. He's the number one dick. Number one dick. Dick, and you can kiss his butt because he's butt kiss and he's got it. Um, (laughs) That's football, baby. Obligatory tight end reference. Yes, tight end, um, split end, wide receiver, penetration. I think we've covered all of the euphemisms. We should move on. We should move on. We'll move on just as Boz did. Even in spite of this, you know, Boz's leverage of being able to go back to Oklahoma is now gone. Uh, But that's not going to stop him. He's going to still write letters to many teams across the NFL saying, if you draft me, I will not report. His... Sole objective was to get drafted to the Los Angeles Raiders. Makes sense. They are the bad boy team of the 80s, and he is the bad boy of the 80s, so why not? It seems like it would be a match made in heaven. One fun fact, he wrote letters to all of these teams. Uh, One team that he did not write a letter to was the Tacoma Stars. If you've never heard of the Tacoma Stars, I'm not surprised. That's because they were a team in the now-defunct Major Indoor Soccer League. Um, (laughs) Tacoma decided with their 12th round pick that they're going to draft the Boz. And their general manager says afterwards, he didn't write us to say he wouldn't play for us, so we figured why not. Of course, Boz doesn't sign with This is a glorified PR move, but I love it. I thought it was a fun little footnote. Um, I'm, I'm also more than happy to real quick mention that like the greatest team in the history of Major Indoor Soccer League was the Baltimore Blast. Of course it was. For the record, this is not even me being crazy. I'm fairly certain they do have the most championships. I didn't know Baltimore even had a team in that league. I didn't even know that league existed until I started doing my research. So anything you tell me, I I fully believe it. But uh, so the the Tacoma Stars did not get a letter saying that Boz wouldn't play for them. Seattle Seahawks did, but that didn't dissuade them. They take him in the supplemental draft. So basically the way it went was Bosworth declared too late to be eligible for the standard NFL draft. But the way the supplemental draft works, basically a team can forfeit that pick in the next draft. So you go through the first round. If nobody bids, then you go through the second round. And a team can select a player and then forfeit that pick in the next draft. So the Seahawks do draft the Bos. 
And he remains true to his word at first. He says, all right, well, I guess what? I'm not recording. But as we've learned many, many times through throughout sports history, throughout the history of humanity, money talks. It talks to Bosworth to the tune of a 10-year, $11 million contract. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot in modern terms, but it's worth noting this is the biggest contract in Seahawks history at the time of its signing. It is the biggest rookie contract to any rookie in the history of the NFL. And this is he's being drafted after guys like Dan Marino, John Elway. Like Great players have been drafted. Great quarterbacks have been drafted. And none of them have gotten a deal even approximating what the Boz made. One scheme that he was unsuccessful in. So at this time... His, his, his iconic number at Oklahoma was 44. The Boz is number 44. Absolute wrecking machine. Due to NFL numbering rules, he was not eligible to wear 44 in the NFL. Now, he and the Seahawks both petitioned the NFL to say, hey, why can't I wear 44? And the NFL says, hey, fuck off. So <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> and so he, he, uh, he, he sticks with the the single-digit doubled theme, and instead of 44, he just goes up to 55. So the Boz is now leveled up to 55. That's going to be his jersey number. And he wants to make a statement, first game in the NFL. So I alluded to John Elway. The Boz was very excited. His first game, they, they traveled to Mile High Stadium to play against the Broncos. Bosworth was very vocal in the media in the lead-up, like, oh, I really can't wait to get after Elway. In fact, he, the exact quote that he said, I can't wait to get my hands on Elway's boyish face. Sounds somewhat Weird. intimate. Somewhat intimate. Yeah, that's a, that's a, little, a little creepy. Very passionate. And as you can imagine, Denver Broncos fans are pissed about this. There are 10,000 Broncos fans that come to this game donning shirts that say, what is a boz worth? Not much. And then on the back it says, ban the boz. That's a pretty good shirt. Credit to them. That is actually a pretty good turn of phrase for a massive shirt campaign. Oh, it's, it's an amazing shirt. And the person that came up with it should be applauded greatly. Which is why I want to applaud Brian Bosworth for his incredible scheme that he managed to pull. Bosworth would write afterwards, if they had looked inside the shirt at the little tag that said Boz44 Incorporated, they would have realized that they paid $15 for a shirt made by my company. We gave all the props to the Children's Hospital. I just wanted to prove how oxygen-deprived Denver fans are. <laughs> Shit! God, oh, fuck, that was, you told that very well. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible scheme. It is a great scheme. Like, if you're going to be the villain, you might as well profit on people hating you as well. So that was kind of Boz's whole MO. And like that was that was the scheme really that I, I I just thought was amazing. I absolutely loved it. But in spite of his great scheming, it, it didn't make a lick of difference on the field. They lose this game 40 to 17. But moving on, there was another marquee game in the Boz's rookie season. They beat the the Raiders in their first matchup. And going into the second matchup, Boz is feeling confident. So uh, James, you alluded to Bo Jackson earlier being drafted in the MLB. Of course, he did become an MLB All-Star eventually, even though he did not sign uh, in the same draft as, as Jason. But obviously, he's also very well known as an incredibly successful running back in the NFL for those LA Raiders that Boz wished that he'd been able to play for. But so he's feeling confident from the fact that they beat the Raiders in the first game, 
And uh, Bosworth proclaims very confidently. He said, I'm going to shut down Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson's not doing anything in this game. And this sets up, of course, the, the, the most famous clip of Brian Bosworth in the NFL, which I, I'm sure we've all seen, which is Bosworth and uh, Bo Jackson meet near the goal line. Jackson's got a one-on-one opportunity going towards the left pylon. Bo Jackson squares up the Boz and just puts him right on his fucking ass. Like, it's not even like a, oh, they stood up for a little bit and then he got ran over. It's like, no, like... He knocks him over. You got fucked up. Bo Jackson actually had a great line to boss with after this. He said, next time, make sure you have the bus fare before I take you for a ride. Boss was not happy about that. He was very upset. Has come to terms with it later. Of course, there's a... Oh, I forget what company the car was, but there was a, there was a car company that signed them both for a commercial fairly recently, and uh, Bosworth gets run over by Bo Jackson in, uh, in an SUV. Uh, so that was funny. They also lose this game. They get blown out. So <laughs> you would think... I'm trying to think that Brian Bosworth, maybe not super great at, at NFL football. Well, it's... But the issue really was for him... From, from the hits that he was laying, his shoulders weren't holding up super great. I'll touch on that more in a little bit. But in spite of Bosworth having his schemes turned on his head at every corner this year, they finish the season 9-6, and six and they do get a wild card berth. They go to the Astrodome, uh, where they play the Houston Oilers, and they lose 23-20 to 20 in overtime. So a hard-fought game, but they're not able to pull it out. Boz started all 12 games in which he played this year. He did miss a couple because of that, that shoulder problem. And he also racked up four sacks. I, I wish I had tackle numbers. I wanted them for both his college career and for his NFL career. They just didn't track tackles back then, which is insane to me. It's the most fundamental did. defensive stat. It's incredibly simple. It's such an easy thing to be like, okay, so-and-so ran for six yards. Hey, who tackled him? Okay. Well, and also, like, it's just the fundamental task of a defender is to tackle somebody. You're right. not going to record them doing the thing they're paid to do. It strikes me as incredibly odd as well. But, uh, say la vie, that's how they did it. They come back for the 1988 season. And, again, Boz has these shoulder problems, but he's playing through them. Week 10, uh, he takes a pop, and it just makes it a lot worse. And he's, he's not able to return that season. He does come back for the 1989 season, which is his third year. Uh, he's able to play in two games before he realizes, like, I just, my shoulder cannot handle this anymore. It's just not going to work. Um, so he is forced to retire. Upon his retirement, team doctor Pierce Scranton Jr. said that Brian was a 25-year-old with the shoulders of a 60-year-old. He flunked my physical. It's still good because, like any good schemer, you can bet that the boss took out an insurance policy on himself. And in 1993, he is awarded a $7 million lawsuit settlement against Lloyds of London. Lloyds basically argued that this was a degenerative condition that he had. He was found to have arthritis in that shoulder, and that would have not been covered by the policy. But the boss successfully argued that it was the result of a single hit, and that's, and that's why his shoulder was messed up. Even though he that was the straw that season. broke the camel's back enough, at least. Sure. I mean, but even though he missed games in the first season because of the shoulder problems, even though he missed games in the second season because of shoulder problems, he is a good schemer. So he's able to argue successfully and get his $7 million lawsuit. Now, he could just sit pretty on all that money after that, but he's like, you know, I'm a decent-looking dude. I have this kind of villain thing going on. Everybody knows who I am. 
let me go to Hollywood. So he goes to Hollywood, and uh, he instantly, in his first film, he stars in a movie called Stone Cold. He is a tough cop uh, that's frustrated that criminals get treated easily. Uh, he's suspended for <laughs> excessive force. Uh, and he ends up having to go undercover and fit in with one of these gangs. Um, I'm not going to spoil the whole plot in case anybody wants to go watch it after this. But I will say, he won an award for this performance. He won a Razzie for Worst New Star. Um, <laughs> and the film grossed $9 million against its $25 million budget for a $16 million loss on so that movie. His trophy case is now two Dick Butkus Awards, which is more than anyone else has ever won, and a Golden Razzie. And a Golden Razzie. He continues to appear in, in B-list films, B-list action films, like up, up through modern day. Uh, he appeared in The Longest Yard, where he's one of the prison guards. And uh, he was also in, as Xavier was alluding to, Blue Mountain State, where Thad Castle, one of the main characters of the show, has a uh, drug-induced visions in which he <laughs> visualizes Brian Bosworth as literally God. Brian Bosworth is his God. It's a great scene, great show. Lots of sophomoric hijinks. I would, I would highly encourage anybody that hasn't seen it to at least check it out. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's not. But you would get to see the boss in that one. He did have a chance to star in his own TV series. This is a series called Lawless, which aired on Fox. There were six episodes in season one, but we only ever got to see one. Because after the first episode, it was canceled due to its horrible critical reception and abysmal viewership metrics. <laughs> wow. So that is, uh, that's what the boss has been up to since he retired. Again, I would recommend anybody who's interested in learning more about the boss, check out that 30 for 30 in that uh, it's also shown. So his daughter, Haley, joined the Oklahoma volleyball team. And today it seems that the boss has receded and Brian Bosworth is taking over again. Very reflective on his years, acknowledges that maybe a few times he might have gone a little too far with some things, but... Ultimately, one of the greatest villains in college football history. I love the scheme to profit off of the Denver fans' hatred. When you figure 10,000 of them bought that shirt at 15 a pop, I don't know what his margins were. but that's He's, he's probably netting at most a couple dollars, but he's, he's making a couple thousand off that. Easily, easily. But the Boz, one of the all-time great schemers, the, the only double dick in college football history, what a guy. What a guy. So that is that is the boss. Now he can, as Bruce Banner, sadly piano walk away, never to hulk out into the boss again. <laughs> I do, just because it'll never come up again, but I want to make it clear, I was not joking about the Baltimore Blast being like the best manner indoor soccer league team. In 16 seasons, they made the championship 13 times and won eight of them. Wow. Hey, which one are you looking at? We might be looking at two different things, because I have the major indoor soccer league, the original one from 78 to 92 up. This would have been... No, I'm saying the Baltimore Blast in my lifetime. The Baltimore Blast from 2002 to 2018. We went to 13 championships in 16 years and won eight of them. So the problem is it's different teams. Because I, I was also looking this up. And because there have been so many different indoor soccer leagues, new teams spring up and just adopt the names of the old teams despite having no connection to them. So the original Baltimore Blast, which existed from 78 to 92, which was when the Major Indoor Soccer League existed, they won one title and lost four times in the championship. 
Meanwhile, the San Diego Soccers won eight titles and never lost in the championship. And the current Baltimore Blast, who are in the major arena soccer league, they have won three titles uh, and lost one time as runners-up. The San Diego Soccers have won six titles. The hearing is that we are pretty good at major indoor soccer. Weirdly enough, the three best teams have been the San Diego Soccers, the Milwaukee Wave, and then the uh, Baltimore Blast. In the original, Does Milwaukee have a strong naval tradition? Because both Baltimore and San Diego can claim a strong naval tradition. Perhaps there's something to that. <laughs> anyway, I'd Brian Bosworth, am I right? <laughs> Brian Bosworth, baby. Love, love the boss. Very good schemer. Way to get the money, way to secure the bag on multiple occasions. But it remains to be seen if he's going to be able to you know, secure induction. We've got two pretty good candidates already, and I would love, Xavier, to hear about who our third candidate for induction is today. Yeah, so I'm going to start with a bit of a story here. On May 26, 1993, Olympique Marseille became the first French team to win the Champions League, beating AC Milan 1-0. The celebrations were immense throughout the south of France, as Marseille celebrating this first Champions League title and also a league and Champions League double after they had previously won the French League a week earlier. This was a culmination of years of progress for Marseille, who at this time were the largest and most supported club in France, and who had won four consecutive French League titles coming into the 92-93 season. But European success had so far eluded them. The closest they had come was a nil-nil loss on penalties to Red Star Belgrade of Serbia in the 1990-91 final, in a game where Marseille had missed multiple starters due to injury. On the field, after the game, during the celebration, the president of Marseille, a man named Bernard Tapie, stated that, quote, we were absolute, absolutely sure of winning. None of us had any doubt. And when Tapie says that, he meant it. Bernard Tapie was a businessman who had amassed a fortune by buying bankrupt companies in the 70s and 80s and turning them around for a profit. He was also a pop singer, the owner of a Tour de France winning cycling team, owner of the longest sailing ship in the world, which he set a record for for crossing the Atlantic Ocean in the quickest amount of time, and a politician. The classic quintuple threat. An article from 2018 Rudolph. called him, quote, Trump before Trump, a typhoon of populist charisma whose Hollywood smile was paired with scheming brown eyes. Could you say that year one more time real quick? Because that's very important to my reception of that headline. 2018. Yeah, okay. Oof. All right. Let's continue. So, Tapie was not a big soccer fan. But in 1986, he was personally asked by the mayor of Marseille, Gaston Defer, to buy the ailing Marseille, who had not won any silverware in 10 years. And at this point, he had succeeded in fully turning them around. But despite Marseille's league success... Tapie was frustrated by what happened in 1991 against Belgrade and decided that he was not going to take any chances this year. Prior to the last game of the season, Marseille were in first, but needed a win to ensure that they would capture the title over PSG and Monaco. This game was only four days before the Champions League final against AC Milan, which was going to be held in Germany. So Tapie was worried about players getting injured again uh, and missing the final, and about them just being exhausted after having to play a really tough last game of the season to secure this title before going to Germany. So he did what any good president would do. He had his player, Jean-Jacques Idelet, 
Contact Valenciennes players uh, Christophe Robert, Jacques Glassman, and Jorge Burachaga to offer bribes in exchange for Valenciennes throwing the match. I love it. I don't love that he's not doing his own dirty work. You shouldn't make the players do that. You should not be putting the players in place to get a suspension. You need them in case you get found out. So the reason he did, he, he had this specific player contact them was because this specific player had played with these three players on a previous team, FC Non. So in 2006, Idol A described the event, quote, Bernard Tapi said to us, it is imperative that you get in touch with your former non-teammates at Valenciennes. We don't want them acting like idiots and breaking us before the final with Milan. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. There's a phone call between Tapi, Idole, and the Valencian players. Robert and Burachaga accepted the bribes. Burachaga later said that he said yes, but never actually took the money. Glassman said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this. But Idole meets with Robert's wife in a darkened parking lot and gives her an envelope with 250,000 francs. Robert pledged to get the Valenciennes team to throw the match. On the day of this match, Robert fakes an injury in the 23rd minute uh, after a very innocuous challenge and walks off the pitch, saying, can't, I can't do it anymore, I can't, I can't play. The normally combative Burachaga, who was known for getting very up in referees' faces and complaining about every single decision, Spent the whole game walking around the pitch and not, not doing anything. At halftime, Glossman goes up to his manager, Boro Primorac, and tells him, hey, these guys were bribed. Yeah, I was going to say, like, is anyone saying anything about this? Jesus. Going off to the second half, Glossman contacts the referee, says, hey, some of the players on our team are trying to throw the match. Although he did not name the players who were doing it. So the referee notes the accusation in his match report, and police come to briefly speak to some of the Marseille players after the game, but nothing else comes of it. Until two weeks later. So this is after the Champions League final, after the celebrations have already gone on, and Robert contacts a local magistrate and says, hey, I took a bribe to, to fix the match against Marseille. The police raids his aunt's house, and he shows them... In her back garden, he had buried the 250,000 francs. He later said, that cash stank so much I had to bury it. So he took the bribe, got his wife involved to take the bribe, then immediately buried the money at his aunt's house. Couldn't live with the, the hideous ticking of the heart. So the police contact Tapi about this, and he claims the money was a loan for Robert to start a restaurant. The police are like, huh. And then they have to go back to Robert, who says, no, 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 I, I swear it was a bribe. I swear he was bribing me. So the French police raid Marseille's headquarters, and then they went to the Marseille preseason camp, which was up in the Pyrenees, because they were doing high-altitude training. And they take half the team away for questioning. Idoli admits to paying the bribe and was arrested and put in jail for, quote, active corruption, along with Marseille's GM Jean-Pierre Bernet. At this point, Tapi is still like trying to distance himself from it, but his player and his GM are now in jail for active corruption, and the person who was bribed has you know, essentially turned into a witness for the state. So in September of 1993, the French Football Federation, the FFF, they remove Marseille's league title, uh, and UEFA bans them from competing in European competitions. 
However, because the cheating did not take place in the Champions League itself, Marseille was allowed to retain the 93 Champions League title. So they still got what Tapie wanted. They still have that. To this day, they are the owners of, of, of the 93 Champions League title. Yeah, and the Astros are 2017 champions. So, uh, you know, a still defiant Tapie was ordered to step down as president of Olympique Marseille and banned for life by the FFF. Uh, this investigation took a long time. The next season, Marseille finishes second, despite all the ongoing legal troubles, but then get forcibly relegated to Division II uh, and forced to stay a second season Division II due to financial irregularities. Tapie is initially protected from any legal charges because, once again, he's a politician. He's actually a member of parliament for Marseille at this point, so he has parliamentary immunity. And so the police can't do anything to him until he gets voted out. Finally, in 1995, they are able to take him to trial. During the time before that, he also tried to bribe the Valencia manager, uh, Primorac, to take the blame. So while being investigated for, for one form of bribery and being safe by parliamentary immunity, he tries to bribe someone else to take the fall for bribery. He is Donald Trump, man. He does not want to be left holding the bag at any point. This, this trial finally takes place in 1995. It's Tapie, Idley, and uh, Bernay. Um, Idley and Bernay both admit to corruption right away, but say it was all Tapie's fault. He, he ordered us to do this. It was all him. If anyone should be punished, it's him. Bernay claimed that the club used match fixing five to six times per season, which was not substantiated during the trial, but essentially it was, hey, we swear it's Tapie. This is his MO. He does this all the time. Tapie gets nearly thrown out of the courtroom as he repeatedly interrupts proceedings and accuses the judge of following political orders to conspire against him. At one point, he shouts at the judge, the search for truth demands that you should not say any old thing. The judge responds by saying, I will not allow myself to be abused by you. And Tapie retorted, nor will I. He's absolutely absurd. He is, he's, I've just been thinking since you said the immunity of the diplomatic immunity guy from Lethal Weapon 2, just yes. bloviating <laughs> around. As you might expect, this is not a very good defense. Tapie does get convicted of both match fixing and fraud, and he's sentenced to two years in prison, although he gets out after only six months. Of course he does. When he got out of jail, he was interviewed by a reporter and said, quote, I am Edmund Dante. I will come back and crush all. And guess what Tapie did? Take over another soccer team and bribe a bunch of people so that they won again? He became a famous theater actor in France. Hey, man, that's not how the Count of Monte Cristo goes. Like, that's not taking revenge. He earned rave reviews for his performance as Randall McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in the highest form of French theater, and then became a television actor, where he appeared in multiple TV series and movies. His son also kept the Tapie group alive and made a lot of money with a sports betting company that they sold for big bucks. Just going to go ahead and ask, because I think the, the family has deserved this level of scrutiny. Has there been any uh, implication of impropriety with that sports betting company? That, not that I could find. They sold it early enough in 2008 where I could, I could not find much about the company they sold it to. I'm assuming it's probably like a shell company for some bigger 
French company or anything like that, but couldn't find anything about any improprieties about that. But I mean, just based on how business works in the whole world, they wouldn't be surprised. I had mentioned earlier that Tapi was a politician. The way he got into this, he had become friends with socialist president Francois Mitterrand, who had helped him win the seat for parliament in Marseille. Then, in 1989, he had a televised debate with far-right politician and leader of the National Front, Jean-Marie Le Pen, where he oh, crushes... Le Pen! He crushes Le Pen. the father of Marie yes. Le Pen. He crushes Le Pen and makes Le Pen look like an idiot on live TV. And Mitterrand's like, I love this guy. Mitterrand names him the Minister of Urban Affairs for the French cabinet in 1992. Fucking absurd. So be- because of this, because of you know this high-ranking position, he is forced to sell off some of his assets. The big one is Bernard Tapie owns Adidas. Oh. He had bought Adidas in the 80s when they were pretty much dead and fully brought them back to life. You know, he, he later said, I've made many mistakes in my life, but that was the biggest one, selling one of the best-known sports brands in the world for a short-lived stint as minister. I think that's hilarious because not going to jail for bribery and match-fixing, that's not the biggest regret in his life. Selling Adidas is the biggest regret in his life. Why would it be... He got six months. He kept the trophy. What regrets does he have about that whatsoever? He faced essentially no consequences at any point for any of his match-fixing. I mean, one of the reasons why he's so upset, he was so upset about the Adidas thing was... This becomes an entire affair with the French government. So the French bank, Credit Lyonnais, which was a state-owned bank, had helped finance the purchase of Adidas uh, you know, through debt back in the 80s. And because these sales take a while, they ended up being in charge of the sale while he was dealing with the bribery and match-fixing issues. So while he's dealing with that, the bank sold Adidas to themselves for a cut market price, essentially just to cover the loans, and then immediately sold it for double the price to Robert Louis Dreyfus, the cousin of Julia Louis Dreyfus, who also became the president of Olympique Marseille that same year, essentially just taking over Bernard Tapie's life, weirdly enough, and then immediately listed Adidas on the French stock exchange for six times what Tapie had paid for it. So Tapie sues Lyonnais saying, hey, you breached your duty of loyalty to me by selling this to yourself for no money and then selling it to someone else to make yourself a bunch of money. But Lyonnais goes broke and the uh, lawsuit gets transferred to the French government who had owned Lyonnais. So he's then suing the French government, who at this point is led by Nicolas Sarkozy, who is a friend of Bernard Tapie. And so, after 13 years of this lawsuit, he gets awarded 400 million euros in compensation by a three-judge panel that was handpicked by Nicolas Sarkozy. The French finance minister who oversaw the panel was a woman named Christine Lagarde, who is the current head of the European Central Bank, and who gets convicted for negligence because it turns out that Sarkozy had essentially set up this whole panel just to pay off his friend to kind of end, end this whole ordeal by giving him 400 million euros in taxpayer money. The longer this story goes on, Xavier, all I can think is I really understand why the French invented the guillotine. <laughs>
That's the only thing I can think. <laughs> this is a, a labyrinth right now that you were describing to me. You have made a very good heist movie in your telling because I thought the bank was going to get him. I thought he got outdone, but no. Now he just slow and steadies it, and the government pays him out nearly half a million euros. Nothing bad has ever happened to this man. So it's not over yet, because this becomes a major scandal when they find out that this was set up to pay him off. Seven years later, it's big national scandal, and they order him to pay back the money. And then they accuse him of fraud. He gets acquitted of the fraud, but order him to pay back the money anyway says fuck you and keeps the money they tried to appeal because it took so long he did die last year not having paid back any of that money because again it took over 26 years for this one lawsuit but he just kept the money so this man and his weird life of bribery and lawsuits and being french donald trump but also taking down right-wing politicians in france you know, a, a strange dichotomy of those two things. And still getting what he wanted. He got the 93 Champions League final. He got his money back. His life is wild. The scandal is wild. Fun fact, Arsene Wenger, he's a French manager, started off coaching in France with Nancy and Monaco. Specifically cited this scandal as the reason for him leaving Monaco and going to Japan to coach Nagoya Grampus. Essentially saying the stench of this scandal had made him like, fall out of love with football. And without that, maybe he never comes to Arsenal in 96. Who knows what would have happened then. But this scandal like pretty much touched everything. And there were other allegations too that were also pretty like, well substantiated but never got like fully dealt with. During the Champions League that year, the manager of CSKA Moscow claimed that Marseille had tried to bribe the team, although he later withdrew that allegation. In that same Champions League, a player for uh, Rangers of Scotland who were playing Marseille in the Champions League alleged that he was paid money to not play in the match uh, between the two sides and conveniently got himself suspended for that game. But UEFA chose not to investigate his allegations because they said that being banned from the Champions League for one season was punishment enough, which I might disagree with a little bit. That's more than Rob Manfred did, if we're keeping the analogy, than 2017 Astros. So, I mean, they got that. Idole alleged that uh, he and other Marseille players were given suspicious injections before games uh, during the Champions League. There were allegations of stealing the water bottles of other teams and injecting something into the water bottles. And uh, Red Star Belgrade captain who, again, had beaten Marseille in the 91 Champions League final, alleged that they'd been approached by Tapie's aides prior to the match with monetary offers to let Marseille win. So if this is correct, he tried to bribe the team in the final to let them win. When that didn't work, he just bribed a lesser team so they'd be more well-rested to win a different final. You know, lots of bribery, lots of suspicious injections, lots of money flowing in different directions to ensure you get what you want, and guess what? He got what he wanted. But uh, Bernard Tapie, grade A schemer, lived a life of incredible excess and success and never facing punishment for your actions. I think it was just, it's a fantastic story. And that's why I wanted to talk about him. No, that's absolutely incredible. That's, that's a wild guy. That's a really wild guy there, X. 
I guess the question then remains, is he the guy this week to enter the hall? We convene the guy Bunel to make that final decision now as we weigh our three guys, Jason Grimsley, the Boz, and Bernard Tapie. Bernard Tapie does fascinate me. This is one of the more interesting human beings that I've learned of. My one hang-up on Bernard Tapie. He has gotten everything he's wanted his entire <laughs> life and faced no consequences whatsoever. And I'm not even saying that he's not going to remain in the back of my mind. But I feel like it's too easy for him to get this now. If it makes you uh, feel better. He did, last year, have a home invasion where robbers came and beat the crap out of him and his wife. And then he died of cancer. I mean, that doesn't make me feel better. Say like the last year of his life was not was maybe not the best compared to everything else that happened. I just I love the the Jason Grimsley story, the the fact that you thought he was done after he got caught with the bat, then being the the main dealer for for the entire two thousand four Baltimore Orioles, which wasn't that successful it seems like, but damn it he tried at least. I did not go into this <laughs> anticipating to just fully get into why the team that I described last week helping me fall in love with baseball is also one of the most heartbreaking teams in my entire lifetime. I was going to move past that, and yet somehow it managed to come up this week. I want to induct Thad Castle. Can we just induct Thad Castle? <laughs> I mean, Thad Castle think- basically is just the, the fictionalized version of the Boz. Yeah. We've never done a fictional character, right? That's... We have not. Ooh. That's some good interstitial programming <laughs> later on, but not today. Not today. Today we've got these three. I like the Boz a lot. The, the t-shirt scheme, I think we could say is safely of all of the schemes we discussed, the most just objectively successful scheme. There is like no drawback in that. That is all profit. That is all just kind of clowning on Denver fans. There's no suspension that comes with it. There's no criminal investigation later you don't get found out eventually because you left a couple chunks of ceiling tile on the ground and also replaced a bat stamped with someone's name with a bat stamped with a different person's name, which was the craziest thing, I think, of, of finding that entire story. But I'm not one to turn down support for Jason Grimsley. I, I understand if him being a steroid user means that Xavier, though, has to exclude his vote. I'm curious, Xavier, who, who you're feeling. You know, I, I think I have to go with the boss. He's the boss. The Boz over to P? I mean, no one else would, is voting for to P, so unless we're going to do a 1-1-1, one, 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 everyone gets in thing. I want you to speak your truth. I don't want you to, to just, like, settle for somebody. Who of these three are you feeling? I mean, I had fun with to P. I like to P a lot. To fun. If you want to try and make a final it pitch is, for to P. It is fun, it is fun to P. <laughs> Learning to P, great. Highly recommend it. I'll go with the Boz. I like the, I like the Boz. Okay. I will go ahead and say Jason Grimsley. Diaz, are you locking into Grimsley? I am a Grimsley vote. Okay, then Jason Grimsley for for two schemes. And again, most schemers fail in the end. We got to recognize most schemers do fail. But I'm glad that we did not fail to come to a, a two-to-one mixed consensus on Jason Grimsley. And, and Diaz, I don't want to take any more time away from you doing the honors. Of course, it is. it is a great privilege and an honor to induct one of the most prolific drug dealers in the history of Major League Baseball. Also a man that will go to any lengths to hide his teammates' indiscretions, whatever they may be, and to protect the team and in service of the team. 
It is a tremendous addition to this illustrious Hall of Guy, Jason Allen Grimsley. Welcome. Welcome. Perhaps this will help you emerge from hibernation a little bit. I think it's been enough time. I think we're ready to welcome you, Jason Grimsley. Because you know what? That bat story's hilarious. I would love to get your account of that, please, again, Mr. Grimsley. Tell us now that video exists in the world. But yeah, welcome, man. Well, with that, we have reached the end of another phenomenal installation of Remember That Guy. We're, we're excited to get back to our, our bread and butter. Uh, I do want to mention that with this coming out on Monday, weather permitting, you may be listening to this as I do a very stupid thing which is try to bike the 115 miles between Baltimore and Philadelphia. And with that, something that I am interested in doing is uh, talk to a couple people that I know that are involved with abortion relief and, and things of that nature, which is, of course, under a little bit more scrutiny recently. And they have often described to me the experience they have where anytime there's a major news event, they obviously receive a large amount of donations then, and that's great. Even a couple weeks later, that is often slowed to a bit more of a trickle. So with that in mind, I'm going to be putting 10 cents towards every mile that I do manage to get from that towards uh, donations about the Baltimore Abortion Fund, which you can find more info about at baltimoreabortionfund.org, as well as our end destination, the Abortion Liberation Fund of Pennsylvania. You can find more information about them at abortionfundpa.org. So consider maybe doing a similar thing. Feel free to follow us on the Twitter at RememberGuysPod. We will share the information if you want to see how far this dumb idea can go. And uh, just wanted to leave with that as, as we now sign off. Anyone else got anything else to add? Excited for your ride. Excited for your ride, James. That's all. I'm feeling, I'm feeling feisty. And uh, we'll leave it at that. And as we leave, I've been your host, James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And I'm, I'm going to go pick up some dinner. Uh, do you guys want anything? I'm thinking Pad Guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's actually <laughs>